1: Welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm Debbie cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal, where we're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Florida State Representative Ben Diamond, who recently announced his campaign for Congress in Florida's 13th District. We talked about legislating in the minority, his disappointment about the voter suppression bill Republicans passed this session, and his wish that more had been done to invest in people as Florida works to recover post-pandemic. We also talked about bright spots, like passing legislation to create a statewide sea-level rise and flooding resilience plan, and how people came together in his community in the face of anti-Semitism. He shared how being the grandson of longtime Florida Congressman Dante Fassal taught him about the good that can come from public service, and set him on his own path to elected office, and how he still believes that reasonable people can come together and enact meaningful change. Ben Diamond, welcome to an honorable profession.
2: Thanks, Debbie. Great to be with you.
1: It's really great to be with you, too. And I'm so excited to have you here to talk about what's happening in Florida and your decision to run for Congress, as well as what propelled you into public service in the first place. And I'd love to start by talking a little bit about the most recent legislative session, which wrapped up at the end of April. A lot came out of that. Uh, and some for some context for our listeners, you know, I think many of us think of Florida as a, as a swing state, a, you know, quintessential swing state. And historically, that's been true on the presidential level. But on the state legislative level, the Republican majorities in both houses are super significant. I think it's like 60-40 in both houses, if I'm doing my math right. So I thought I'd uh, start with a question about just legislating in general in that environment and how you approach your job as a legislator, specifically how you think about the balance between needing to fight against bad bills but also try to get things done for your constituents.
2: Well, that's exactly right. It is a balance and you want to be effective, but at the same time, you have to be true to your principles. You know, I'm a proud Democrat. I was, I've been a part of our Democratic leadership team in the Florida House of Representatives. As you mentioned, we are outnumbered in the Florida House, but I think it's important that we stand up and fight against legislation that, is hurtful to Floridians that doesn't serve our constituents best interests and i think at the same time you know we try as hard as we can to find common ground and areas of agreement and ways to make progress on issues this past session was a very challenging session and a very distressing session from my perspective and a session with a lot of missed opportunities we Our our state capitol building was essentially closed to the public, there was a process for some people to get into the committee rooms in the Florida House. There was no way to get into the Florida Senate. And we were, as you know, Debbie, one of the last legislatures to meet in the COVID crisis. Our Democratic caucus had been calling for over a year, you know, since the crisis started last March for a special legislative session to address all of the challenges we were having here with the pandemic. And the Republican legislative leadership refused the call for a special session. So, from our perspective, there was a lot of work that needed to be done to help people as a result of what we were living through with COVID 19. And instead of taking that tact, the leadership pushed a very aggressive kind of wedge agenda, wedge politics agenda in this session. And uh, that was really unfortunate. And that required us to be as vocal as we could in opposition to many of those bills.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to dive into some of those actually, because a lot of those wedge issues you're talking about made national headlines. So I'm sure our listeners are aware of some of that, starting with voting rights. Governor DeSantis signed a pretty bad voter suppression law last month that came out of the legislature. And what's so interesting to me about that legislation, Ben, is that you, you know, it Coming out of the election in Florida, you know, it felt like people on both sides of the aisle were talking about how great the process went in Florida. The election process went smoothly, so it wasn't even kind of clear what problem they were trying to solve, yet you've got this pretty bad legislation that mirrors voter suppression efforts all over the country. So tell us about that and how that came about, and and I'm curious how, how it's playing in Florida.
2: Absolutely. Well, it was very distressing. You're absolutely right in the sense that the Secretary of State and the supervisors of elections of our 67 different counties in Florida all came to the legislature at the beginning of session and basically said that we had just completed in 2020 the most successful election we've had in the history of our state. There were very few instances of voter irregularities, really no voter fraud to speak of. And yet, in spite of that, the leadership pushed this very bad bill to make it harder for Floridians to vote. And it's part of this national trend that you were just referring to. The bill that passed limits the use of drop boxes and makes it uh, more difficult for Floridians to vote by mail. And voting by mail is very popular here. In my county in Florida, Pinellas County, more than 60% of our voters voted by mail in this past election and what was distressing to me was that that legislation was being ran through over the strong objections of the supervisors of elections from all over the state many of whom are republicans you know i i spent some time on the phone talking to quite a lot of time talking to my supervisor of elections who was adamantly opposed to the legislation because she knew that it was going to make voting more difficult and uh, was going to make the administration of elections a lot more challenging. But I was also talking to supervisors like uh, former state senator Alan Hayes, who, you know, is a very conservative member of our state senate before becoming the supervisor of elections in Lake County, and he was quite opposed to what the legislature was doing. Just two days ago, the supervisors of elections had their summer conference here and the amount of confusion and concern on the implementation of this new law was palpable. Mm. And they're very vocal and very concerned about it. And of course, in the city of St. Petersburg, we have municipal elections in August. Right. So it's not just an academic discussion. You know, it. Um, not only does the, the new law make it harder for people to vote, it injects this sort of, partisanship into the issues of the determination of the validity of a vote, which is very concerning to me. Anyway, it, it's bad legislation. It's part of this national effort. And it's, it's frankly why we're hopeful that the United States Congress and President Biden can pass some of this federal legislation to protect our right to vote.
1: Yeah, and we're going to come back and talk about your congressional run. Hopefully you'll be part of that uh, effort to do that. Is that the only path, just out of curiosity, to is that kind of the hope for reversing this? There's not really another path except for federal legislation in your mind?
2: Well, I think that my hope is that the pendulum will swing back in favor of the voter, also on the state level, you know, that the opposition you know the opposition to these changes by our elected supervisors of elections and by voters will eventually be heard and will resonate with members of the state house and senate but nobody was really listening to them unfortunately in the majority party during this past session and um you Know it, it, it was very unfortunate,
1: yeah, absolutely. And I want to ask you about another thing you talked at the top about the missed opportunities in the legislature, and in particularly the opportunity to come back for a special session on COVID 19 issues. And that's obviously another huge issue happening in Florida and around the country is this is the you know, how we're going to craft a post-economic, you know, an economic recovery to COVID and and, and rebuild America, hopefully in a way that works better for more people. In particular, in Florida, you know, there was a lot of talk about your guys' unemployment insurance uh, system that was really struggling uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. I know you introduced legislation to try to increase access to benefits on the flip side of that, your governor, I think, is my understanding, opted out of a federal program that would allow for additional benefits to come to Floridians, which seems a little counterintuitive to me. And so, and then, and then we've also got with that backdrop the uh, just this week the American Rescue Plan dollars have started flowing to states and localities from the federal government to try to help. So, um, a lot going on. And, and in fact, I know, Ben, that in, in a previous life you all you worked uh, at, during the last recession on Florida's response to that recession. So I'm. Kind of curious with both hats on as a legislator and someone who's done this before what what are you hoping or what do you think needs to happen to kind of get Floridians the benefits and tools they're going to need to succeed coming out of this
2: sure well you know i mean living through this this pandemic being in elected office was just such an eye-opening and difficult experience for me and the number of constituents i mean we basically spent our whole year on the phone with constituents who couldn't access their unemployment benefits because our state unemployment system was never properly established or set up. And in fact, our state auditor general basically flunked the system in three different audits, Mm. and the state agency in charge of it never fixed it. And then once people were even able to access the system, they found out that the the law had been changed under former Governor Rick Scott in a way to make it very, very difficult for them to receive any type of meaningful help. I think as we come out of this, this real challenging time that we've all lived through, we have to think about ways we can prioritize and invest in people. And I think there are so many opportunities for us to do that and we are continuing to miss the boat here in state government in florida in terms of what we should be doing you know as you mentioned debbie in your very good introduction to the summit that you just organized the pandemic really laid bare all these very real inequities in our society economic opportunity and health care were two of the biggest that we saw here in Florida. And, you know, we are one of the few states still refusing to expand access to Medicaid. We could have met at this past session and joined all these other states in moving forward to do that. And 800,000 Floridians would then have access to health insurance and Florida would have received $3.5 billion from the federal government. You know, one of the things that became so clear being on the phone for the past year with people dealing with the challenges with COVID-19 is that there are just a lot of people that, that were struggling because they had never been to a doctor. You know, there are all these people with these underlying health conditions in my community and in my, in my district, and they had no access to health care. And that isn't really changing because of the intransient of our uh, Republican legislature on that issue. So I'd like to see us reverse course on that. You know, there are other red states, as you know, there are other Republican states that are have changed their thinking and are moving forward on that. And I think we should be doing that. And I think we should be doing more in terms of direct relief to help people, help small businesses. You know, there were a lot of small businesses during this pandemic that did not get a PPP loan because they didn't have an established banking relationship. And there was a lot of innovative work done in other states to help those small businesses that, that didn't have those relationships, those minority-owned businesses, you know, with relief in here. And, and I, I introduced amendments as part of our appropriations process to try to do that. There, there was just a lot more we could be doing on the state level. Now, fortunately, the American Rescue Plan Act has really did come to the rescue in our state legislative session. I mean, we started our session writing a state budget that was going to be an absolute disaster in terms of cuts to health care and education and the priorities that we needed to be investing in for Floridians. And we ended up, you know, three weeks later after the passage of that bill writing a budget north of $100 billion, the largest budget in the history of the state, with a lot of meaningful investments and a lot of important investments that I think are gonna really help Florida come out of this storm uh, even stronger. And that's because of the leadership of President Biden and the Democrats in Congress.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. And it it is, I mean, these, these are historic investments, to your point about the historic budget. I mean, this is, and it feels like this is a time where we can really make this transformational investment really once in a generation, once in a lifetime, for sure. Are you confident that what you were able to do in the legislature will translate into the investments that are needed or because the legislature's out, is there room for for this to go (laughs) to go to go awry? uh, You know, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, because it is it's just it's such an interesting thing. I know that there was a race between legislatures being out of session even before this bill was passed and making sure that the money was going to be able to come so you could allocate and budget for you. So so where I guess where are some of the the places you guys made big investments and and how comfortable are you that they're going to get there?
2: Well, some of them were very positive because they were longtime priorities of Floridians. I mean, for instance, there's historic investments in our state budget in water protection, in environmental protection, in our Florida Forever program, which is our state's historic land conservation program. You know, again, this legislature has has not really prioritized investing in people in the way that I would like to see, and and we made a bunch of policy choices that I just disagreed with. I mean, for instance, we we finally agreed that we were going to start collecting the sales tax for online purchases because everybody, you know, we primarily fund our state budget in Florida through the collection of sales tax. But as more and more people started buying things online, we weren't really collecting that online sales tax. So we we agreed that we would start doing that, but then the bill got changed and the decision was made to use most of that money for a big corporate tax break. And in the middle of this pandemic, after we had spent a year all talking to people that were facing real hardships, that just didn't seem like the right priority to me. So, you know, we could have done more. We could have done more good with it. We we used a lot of it to beef up our reserves. You know, it's it's always a mixed bag. But fortunately, we were in this position uh, with the passage of the bill to you know, write a budget that we could all ultimately get behind as opposed to where we were headed, which was going to be a really bad, really, really challenging uh, budget situation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned it's a great segue. I wanted to ask you about one great success you had this legislative session, which was on the climate front and environmental front, something that you've been passionate about and worked on for for years. And you were able to co-sponsor with a Republican colleague uh, and pass legislation to create a statewide sea level rise and flooding resilience plan. So tell us about that and and some of the other issues that you've been able to address in the legislature around climate?
2: I have a lot of optimism that we're turning the corner. You know, for years in Florida, local governments have been the ones that have been leading the charge in trying to prepare our state for the impacts of climate change and coastal resiliency. And there's been really no leadership in state government on this issue for a long time. And, um, ever since I was elected in 2016, I've been working on it because we have neighborhoods in Pinellas County. I live in Pinellas County is a peninsula, you know, on the west coast of Florida, where one of the most exposed communities to the impacts of climate change in the nation. We have a lot of flooding in neighborhoods like Shore Acres and other parts of the county. And hurricanes are obviously becoming, I mean, hurricanes are sort of A way of life or part of being a Floridian as you get through hurricane season, but the hurricanes are becoming more intense here and far more dangerous and destructive. The legislature this year kind of began to dip their toe in the water and you know started doing some work on legislation relating to flooding and dealing with the flooding problem. We have a long way to go. There is not yet any consensus that we should be working on the causes of climate change Mm. now Uh, there's not yet any consensus that we need to be setting goals for how we how we use energy promoting energy efficiency so we've got a long way to go but at least there's discussion now you know there was a famous hearing in the state government in tallahassee that made national news a few years ago when Rick Scott was governor, where one of his agency heads literally couldn't even say the words climate change. It was like he had been instructed (laughs) not to even say it. And now I think there's consensus that, look, our prosperity and our future success as a state is going to be linked to how we address this issue how we protect our environment i mean our beaches our water these are among our most important economic assets and we have to do everything we can to protect our communities and um so you know in that sense i'm i'm pleased that the rhetoric is beginning to change while the rhetoric is changing the policy needs to get there
1: yeah, yeah. And we
2: still got a long way to go on the policy. Yeah. A long way to go. I mean, I'm positive on it in the sense that I've voted for these bills and I'm supportive of the fact that my colleagues are now joining in the rhetoric. I think now we've got to really look at what some other states are doing that's that's candidly far more proactive, you know, in trying to deal with these challenges cuz this these are going to be the great challenges facing Florida for the next generation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously there's, um, while so important what you will do and be able to do at the state level or even at the local level, federal government has a huge role to play in all of this too. We had four years of Trump uh, presidency, where again, like your uh, explanation of the hearing, it felt like we couldn't talk about it for four years. Now we have a president who's prioritizing climate and putting it at the heart of almost everything uh, he's doing. So um, with your congressional, you know, thinking about running for Congress, if you're in Congress, what, what what needs to happen at the federal level to bolster what you're talking about, what needs to happen at the state level?
2: Well, there's a lot of great things now happening in Washington as a result of the leadership of President Biden the Democrats in Congress, you know, my friend, Congresswoman Kathy Castor, who represents Tampa, which is on the other side of Tampa Bay from my home of St. Petersburg, is uh, the chair of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. And for folks who are interested in this area of policy who are listening, I encourage everybody to look at the work that uh, Congresswoman Castor and that committee is doing just candidly seeing the president re-engage on the international stage is so important in this issue. You know, the president just got back from his first trip to Europe um, a few days ago. And the, the negative impact of, you know, our former president's withdrawal from the world stage in leading on this issue, you know, our withdrawal from the Paris Accord, mm-hmm. all of that Was a huge step back in terms of what we need to be doing um, on the national level to really lead the world in addressing this crisis. And I think just the president's, President Biden's willingness to reengage in a positive way on the international stage in leading on uh, climate is going to be the most important thing that's happening in Washington.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is such a breath of fresh air to wake up every morning and see what's being said and saying, I agree with that. I agree with that. it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's well, <laughs> and,
2: and Just having a president that is, uh, you know, honest and level-headed and thoughtful. And, you know, I know that not all Americans agree with everything that, that happens, but I think that we all we all appreciate that.
1: I agree with that. I agree with that. There's one other thing I want to ask you about that's kind of just with the backdrop of Florida. I noted that you recently had a an op-ed where you talked about the rise of anti-Semitism in uh, in Florida and 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 frankly around the country. And it seems like those you know heartbreaking instances are part of just this larger trend of the divisions in our country and kind of turning against one another. And I'm just curious about. Your thoughts as an elected official? Someone's thinking about being in Washington. You know how we're going to heal this country? How we're going to bring people together? And kind of, you know, I mean, yeah, thirty seconds. Go. No, I'm joking. But you know, (laughs) of course, it's a very big question. But you know, just thoughts you have about. No,
2: I think it's a really important question. I've been thinking a lot about it, writing about it. It's part of the reason why I decided to run for Congress. I mean, you know, the we just had a terrible incident here. I'm proud of the fact that I have in my legislative district, the Florida Holocaust Museum, which is really one of the world's greatest museums on the Holocaust. And um, it was, uh, you know, we woke up one morning and somebody had come by and spray painted all this anti-Semitic graffiti on the museum's walls. And, um, and that's sort of coming after learning that the, so many of the people that were involved in this attack on the nation's capital on January 6th we're Floridians, you know, we, we have the, we have a very active, you know, unfortunately a very active network here of these hate groups. And we need to be, you know, whether we're elected officials or citizens or community leaders, you know, coming out and speaking out against that about a week after the museum incident, we had a rally in front of the museum and it was so, Encouraging to me to see how many people were there and how many different people were there. You know, people of all races, ages, religions, backgrounds. You know, there are a lot of really good people in this state and in this country. And we just have to come together and say that that type of hate filled action is just not going to be tolerated. And we also have to reject the whole politics of fear and division you know, when we see it. And we're seeing a lot of it still in Florida because we've got leaders that are candidly, you know, playing that playbook. And we have to be willing to call that out when we see it. You know, it's really just about coming together and speaking out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is. Um, I and mean, I do have hope. I just, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch us go through this as a country and to I still in my heart of hearts believe that there's more that unites us than divides us. And it's just finding ways to come together, finding ways to talk to each other and hear each other. And just um, so I appreciate, I appreciated very much that that article that I read that you wrote and um, and, and all you're doing on, on that front. So let's talk about this congressional run of yours. You recently announced you're going to run for Florida's 13th congressional district, which is uh, in your hometown of St. Pete. Charlie Crist is the current member there. And he's obviously announced to run for Governor again. So, just at the very basic level, like what what made you decide to? You've, t- you've touched on it as we've gone through a little bit, but kind of what 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 made you decide you wanted to throw your hat in the ring for federal office?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it public service has always been a huge part of my life, and um, I grew up around around public service and was inspired to run for office because my grandfather Dante Cassell uh, served in Congress from Florida. He represented uh, Miami Dade and Monroe counties. In the United States House for almost four decades. And so even though I grew up over here in Pinellas County, we were always going down to Miami for his different campaign events. And I saw the tremendous good he was able to do uh for Florida in um that role. And it was always an inspiration to me. Of course, it was a little bit of a different time back then. I mean, he was a real uh, you know, he was a diehard Democrat, but he had incredible friendships and relationships with his republican colleagues and he was able to uh, work in a very bipartisan way to get a lot done for his district and for florida and i still think that approach is possible i mean i know that there are people that get a lot of press because they're on the extremes and they say outrageous things whether it's on social media or cable news or whatever. That has never been my approach um, in the state legislature. That would not be my approach if I were fortunate enough to get to go represent our community in Washington. I think, you know, people here in Pinellas County, the voters are very independent minded. They want to see people serving them who are pragmatic who are looking to find common ground and who are going to stand up for what's right. And. and focus on the issues that matter in our county and in our community. And I've been working on those issues now for a while in the state house, and I want to keep working on them in this, uh, in this new role.
1: Yeah. I think there is something about, you know, bringing reasonable people together, you know, it's that it's, it's finding that um, those ways that you can do, you can you know, just have reasonable conversations. I was going to, this is the, I wanted to tell you, I saw uh, the cutest picture I think you posted of a throwback Thursday recently of you as a very small child on somebody's shoulders at a campaign event for your grandfather. And I, I just loved it. And um, uh, well, that's <laughs> it.
2: yeah, my granddad had a picnic every year. It was called his Labor Day picnic, the Donnie Fassell Labor Day picnic. And it became like a, this sort of go-to democratic Political event in South Florida. And I went to, you know, I went to that picnic every year, you know, as a kid from when I was two years old to when he left Congress. And uh, I just had the happiest memories of those picnics. And I, you know, eventually I was old enough to like work the picnic and would go to the picnic committee meetings. And then I would work in the Pepsi booth or whatever, but um, that's where that picture was from.
1: I love that. I love that. Well, and I'm, I'm just curious. So like, you know, did you, you know, when you got out of law school, you, you did start working in public uh, service, not uh, running for office yet, but uh, in 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 the public in the public realm. So I'm curious, as, you know, was that experience of you know growing up with a grandfather who was in Congress and seeing that good as you said that he could do? Is that kind of something that you always thought you were going to do, or did that kind of how did that unfold for you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, i i I've always been motivated by public service. and and as you mentioned, like when I finished law school at the University of Florida, I was looking for opportunities to serve. And so I went. And worked in state government uh, for four years in Tallahassee for Alex Sink, who was our then chief financial officer of the state. And that was an incredible experience because I was up there as her lawyer and general counsel when we had the states, you know, the Great Recession in 2008 and then the BP oil spill, which was a huge catastrophe for Florida. And um, she ran for governor of Florida and unfortunately was unsuccessful against Rick Scott. But, but I had gotten bitten by the bug early. And so when my state house seat opened up in 2016, I decided to run for it. And I just really enjoyed the work and, you know, the constituent service piece is, is the most rewarding piece because you can really help people if you take the time to listen and follow up. And uh, there's a lot of good you can do. It doesn't matter about your party. You know, if you get on the phone with a state agency and you've got a constituent with a problem, they, you know, you can, you can help solve problems and that's the most rewarding part.
1: Yeah. You have young children yourself, actually, about the age probably that you were when you were on in that picture. And I'm, you know, how do they feel about you uh, running for, for office and, and, and and what do you hope they, you know, do you hope, what, what do you hope they, you instill in them by being in this, in this kind of in the public service arena?
2: Well, I do. Our 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 kids are are everything, you know, uh, to us. Um, our son Frankie is eight, and then uh, Christina and I have twin girls, Adele and Vera. They're three years old, and um, you know, it's hard not to get emotional thinking about about them and why you're involved in public service work. I mean, we're all doing this because we want our children, our grandchildren, to you know, experience that sense of the American dream and know that they have a community that they're growing up in that is uh, safe, that their schools are great schools, that they have are going to have opportunities, hopefully to build their own careers and their own families here. And um, I don't know, you know, our son Frankie is now old enough to come with me to some, you know, community events. and. I think he's learning a lot about it. I think he's learning about the diversity of our community. I think he's learning about the diversity of, of our community in every way. And I think that's a really, those are really important lessons for kids to learn. So we'll see. I, I, you know, I know this takes a big toll on, on your family, and uh, I am very appreciative of the fact that my family is so supportive of me and wanting to do this.
1: Well, I I couldn't agree with you more about the lessons that are important to learn. And I mean, I just feel like watching these things that we've been going through collectively as a country of the last few years, January 6th, to name one, with my own kids and trying to explain what was happening back to our conversation about how we're going to unite the country. I mean, it starts with that kind of engagement and that kind of understanding and that kind of involvement, I think, at a really early age. So I'm so happy to hear you say that. And and I just want to You're making me emotional too, but I mean, you know, I just want to end on on just telling you how grateful I am for you and for all of your fellow elected officials. I, you know, this is, it's not e- an easy time to be an elected official. And that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for this, for this podcast to lift up the stories of you all who, who put yourselves out there. People think it's some, you know, <laughs> I don't know what people think about public officials it, as if it's some glamorous, like these are hard problems and, you know, to solve, you don't get the recognition that you deserve and that, you know, and, and, and it's just tough and, you know, and it is a sacrifice day to day. So I'm just so grateful for you and for, um, for so many of you who, who step up and for all those people who are listening about, uh, thinking themselves, maybe they might want to run for office someday. It's so important to have people of of character and integrity in these offices. So so thank you, Ben, for everything you're doing.
2: Well, I, I appreciate that, Debbie, and I appreciate all the work you've done to bring together the New Deal leaders. You know, as we were chatting a little bit before we went on the air, this is such an amazing network of people. I feel so privileged to be a part of it and I got invited in right, you know, right when COVID <laughs> started. So I feel like I haven't even gotten to meet everybody <laughs> yet, but I've already got, at least I've gotten to exchange emails and do some phone calls and Zooms with folks. And it's just, it's inspiring to me to see the really innovative leadership that so many people are providing their communities around the country. And it's, you know, these discussions have really kept me going during Uh, some difficult months during COVID. So I appreciate all you do too.
1: Well, I thank you for that very much. Well, I will let you get to your weekend. Really appreciate you being with us today and we'll be watching the congressional race very closely and looking forward to uh, working with you in that capacity soon. Thanks so much, Ben.
2: Thanks, Debbie. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. You too.
0: Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more Amazing Leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable boots. Road group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.